I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. If you listen to this podcast enough, you probably recognize that a recurring theme is about engagement. As investors, we're constantly pressed to engage with companies as a means to improve them. For oil producers, it's about engaging them on climate change issues. For tobacco companies, on the other hand, it's a fierce debate about whether engagement is even realistic given the inherent health risks of tobacco. But what does that mean for countries, for sovereign states? What do we do with rogue states, bad actors, and conflict-affected regions? How do we treat them, particularly when it comes to addressing human and labor rights issues? After all, UN, EU, and U.S.-imposed sanctions have produced a list of more than a dozen countries, from North Korea and the Democratic Republic of Congo to Somalia and Myanmar, that effectively limits our ability to engage them as investors. To better understand how NGOs are fulfilling a vital function in this area in many of these countries, I sat down with Harriet Lamb. Harriet is CEO of the peace-building charity International Alert. She was previously CEO of Fairtrade International and has campaigned her entire life on social justice issues. In 2006, she was appointed a CBE for a contribution to Fairtrade. International Alert is a London-based international NGO, which was funded in 1985 as a standing international forum on ethnic conflict, genocide, and human rights to focus on peacekeeping activities. International Alert works in over 25 countries and territories around the world, addressing issues that include citizen-state relations, conflict, climate change, economic development, and gender relations. I also want to note that International Alert depends on donor funding from international development funds, as well as individuals. So, if you're impressed by their work and with what Harriet has to say on this podcast, consider donating at www.international-alert.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the show, Harriet. It's great to have you here. It's fantastic to be here. So I want to start off with your backstory before we talk about International Alert. What brought you, as I sort of read about your background, what brought you from a background of campaigning around local issues, minimum wage, refugee rights, to uh, something more global like the fair trade agenda, and ultimately to International Alert and the peacekeeping activities? I think it all goes back to my luck that as a child I spent many years living in India. So I think from a very early age I had a clear knowledge about the scale of extreme poverty that exists in the world. But also living in a country like India, it's completely obvious that India can make poverty history for themselves. And so for me, what was always interesting was how can we change the global structures and policies that are keeping poor people poor? And that might mean about having a welcome refugee policy here in Britain. But it's also about making sure that we have fairer trade with the world, that we have more and better aid, and that we don't, for example, sell weapons to repressive regimes. So I once worked for a campaign group that was campaigning to stop uh, Midland Bank, as it was then, 
underwriting the sales of Hawk fighter jets to Indonesia that were being used to bomb East Timor, as it was then a colony. And to highlight our point, I actually drove a Challenger tank through the streets of the city of London <laughs> to the Barbican, where I had my uh, one share so that I could go into the uh, shareholders meeting and raise my point. Uh, this, I must say, was before 9-11. I don't think you'd be able to drive a tank through the streets of the city of London now. So I've always wanted to highlight the problems and say the truth as it is. But also, I've always been interested to how do you engage positively to create change? And I think you need both. And that's where fair trade to me was so interesting because it was an amazing way that ordinary farmers and workers in the developing world, ordinary people who don't know anything about trade policy, but who buy tea and coffee and bananas every day, could have a, could come together and tell companies that actually they did care and they did want a fairer trade system. And it was a brilliant way for companies to meet customer demand, to have better relations with their supply chains uh, and to deliver fairer trade and find a way to tackle poverty. So I, I loved working in fair trade. And one of the things, though, that always struck me very deeply was when we worked in conflict countries, when we worked with coffee farmers in DRC Congo or olive growers in Palestine. And I was always really interested in how do the three big issues of our time connect, which is tackling poverty, tackling climate change and tackling conflict. And so when the opportunity came to lead the organisation International Alert that does peace building, I felt that was really interesting as a next step in how you address those three issues which are absolutely intertwined and are the big issues of our day. That's fascinating. So let's start off with the newly released report that, uh, that you have uh, from International Alert called Human Rights, Due Diligence in Conflict-Affected Settings, Guidance for Extractive Industries. Why is it so important for the extractive industry operating in uh, conflict-affected regions to consider human rights um, and their impact over the course of their due diligence? The United Nations and the World Bank just released a seminal report called Sustaining Peace in which they analyze why is conflict rising around the world? What are the root causes? And one of the many points that they highlighted was, in fact, the role of the extractive sector. That they say, if you look back over decades, in some way is connected with conflict, that 40 to 60% of conflicts around the world have been fueled or triggered or sustained by the extractive sector. So it's absolutely critical that the extractive sector change the way they work. Of course, they can bring wealth, they can bring jobs, they can bring more prosperity to people, but they can also be fueling conflict. And so the question is, how can those com companies operate in a way that at minimum does no harm and does not contribute to conflict? And at best is actually really helping positively contribute to tackling poverty and building peace. And so we've worked now at International Alert for over 20 years with the extractive sector, looking at how they can change their day-to-day -day operations from the head office level, and it needs that kind of leadership, down to the person at the gate, to the security guard, to the, to the contractors coming in with the uh, lorries and the impact that they're having on local communities. And this toolkit is the next step in thinking how companies can be aware of their impact, 
because companies often tend to look at working conflict situations as a risk. And yes, it can be a risk to the company, but the company can also be a risk to the community. And it's having that two-way awareness. And we've broken it down into chunks so that companies can consider their impact and think about what to do. And the key for us is the toolkit should be used, that it's got easy examples, it's got explanations of how to do this so that middle management, for example, throughout the world can hopefully pick it up and improve the impact of their operations. What would be some of those examples? Um, in, in particular, what would be some best practices? And I'm wondering how universal these would be. Um, could these be adopted by industries outside of the extractive industry? Absolutely. Our goal is that the principles that we've developed in this toolkit and that we've been putting into practice for years now with members of the extractive sector, actually, they still have a long way to go within the extractive sector. Let's be honest. As in every sector, you really have the leaders who are doing best practice and showing the way. And then let's be honest, you've got the laggards who are still causing enormous amounts of conflict around the world. And so we believe we've got a long way to go in the extractive sector, but also that these principles could be really useful for people across different different sectors, whether it's agribusiness or whether it's through to garment making. The principles about how do you operate in fragile and conflict-affected states remain the same. And what companies have found very useful is that we break that down. Operating in conflict-affected states doesn't just mean doing business in Syria, which is what people often assume. And, of course, there are many countries like Syria that are at all-out war. But there are also countries that are coming out of war, like Colombia. There are countries where there's social unrest around company operations, a country like Brazil, for example. There are countries where it's about armed violence. It's not a set-piece war. There's armed violence that makes it very difficult for companies' operations. And so we think that having that lens and understanding the nature of the operations can really make sure that companies don't do harm, don't uh, cause human rights problems, but actually are positively contributing to peace. And to give you a very positive example, we've worked for eight years with Anglo-American on implementing these principles. And in that time, they haven't had many, any major incidents relating to security around their sites. And that's because they've been taking it really, really seriously and investing the time and the energy in training staff right through the company. From an institutional investor perspective, um, when you look at at the country level, what's investable and what's not. Um, There is a universal list of, call it a no-go list, Um, a set of countries that either because of sanctions or or certain norms um, uh, set uh, either globally or or within within a certain country, um, you can't invest in that country. I mean, Yemen would be one. uh, Syria would be one. North Korea obviously would be one. Um, But, you know, unfortunately... That means there is absolutely no opportunity opportunity for engagement, for improvement, for for um, for affecting change. Um, so I'm wondering, in those areas or countries, what does that community that's trying to affect change look like? Um, when when I look at climate change, um, there's a set of actors. It's finance. It's multilateral actors like the World Bank. It's state actors, um, even uh, uh, obviously country actors, um, NGOs, um, all working together. Right. But what does that picture look like? What does that community look like for conflict affected areas? To tell you the truth, I think it looks very fragmented. And I don't think yet the people who are working to think, how can business operate best in fragile states, have yet found that kind of coherence and the coming together that 
after many decades, has now come with the climate change community. And so I think that's where the start of that journey of these issues going higher and higher up the agenda of companies and indeed, I hope, of institutional investors and, of course, of governments. And I think it's really important, the point you make, that this is not about just saying, well, we won't invest in fragile states and that taking a completely, if you like, risk-averse point of view or short-term point of view from a company perspective. Because I think it is about companies can make a real difference if they do invest wisely in a fragile state. They can really help build the economic underpinning of peace. They can help build local government capacity and generate the resources that can help tackle some of the marginalisation and disempowerment of people. So I think it is really companies and investors being willing to go where it is more difficult. And there are many very inspiring examples. To give you one, Nespresso's worked for many years to say how could they build the coffee sector coming out of South Sudan. And there was a point when they had absolutely tiny amounts of coffee coming out of South Sudan and it was still the second biggest export after oil because the country's economy is in such a dire state and it's been incredibly difficult it has ups and downs with the fighting but the key is they're in it for the long term because they know that that is the long term way to build peace and sustainability and they also know that they can take a leadership role in saying that companies can make those kind of investments to give you another example, Lush, the um, cosmetics company, has for many years bought cocoa from a community. It was called the community, Peace, Peace Community in Colombia that refused to go either with the FARC guerrillas or with the government and the paramilitaries and constantly actually faced a massacre. And all through really difficult years, Lush said, we will go on buying that community's cocoa. And even though it was much more difficult than buying cocoa on the open market, they stuck with that community. And I think those are the kind of really inspiring examples of companies who have been ready to go into no-go areas, to say, we will go that extra mile because it's about the long-term future and stability of the communities on whom we depend in our supply chains and who can be our future. And Hopefully those inspiring examples, which are now the few, can begin to generate the backing so that more companies come behind it. And we do have initiatives like the Global Compact. We do have initiatives like the voluntary principles on human rights and security in the mining sector, where people have come together to think, how can they better contribute to peace? But there's still a very long way to go. When you think about uh, conflict-affected regions, and I guess it's something I'd, I'd term this point of intersectionality, this, this sort of point where a lot of different factors are sort of colliding. Some of them are systemic, like climate change. Others aren't. Um, but you have, you know, these these issues like climate change, like migration, ultimately um, driving conflict or the reverse in, in a different order sequence. Um, but how much of that do you see in, in the conflict-affected areas? And can you give us a sort of example of, of um, even if you can point to some causal examples, I'm not sure if they exist, but you know, when it comes to climate change and, and um, what you're seeing around that? Oh, you're so right to point to that connection between climate change being an exacerbating factor of conflict. It is not alone the only cause, but what it absolutely does is increase the pressure on natural resources, which are very often at the root cause of conflict. So to give you one sad example, 
Actually, it was years of drought in Syria caused by climate change that led to communities migrating internally, and most migration is always internal, migrating internally to the cities, and the pressure that put on resources in the city was a spark that led to the riots, which Assad just smashed down on, and that that was the cause, the starting point, if you like. That was the spark of a civil war seven brutal years later. And that's one of the saddest examples, really, that climate change was one of the factors. And, of course, there were many other in the mix. The World Bank UN report I mentioned earlier likewise said that where there are deep ethnic divisions, looking back over 30 years, in a quarter of the cases, climate change has then made it worse and has led to armed conflict. And so I think it's one of the issues in the mix that has contributed to the terrifying rise in conflict that we've seen in recent years. After the end of the Cold War, there was a time when the zone of peace did expand, and that's gone just crashing into reverse. All the statistics are now at all-time high. We face more battle deaths than for 25 years. We face the largest humanitarian crisis of our time with 65 million people on the move, very often internally, but also, of course, internationally. We face a rise in conflicts in a way we've never had before. And it's, it is the combination of climate change and too many people left behind, too many people excluded economically and politically. And it's those coming together of those factors that is often leads to conflict. And that's why it does need a likewise, it needs people to come together if we're going to begin to solve it. I actually think it's really interesting as well that the UN Security Council has recognised that climate change is an exacerbating factor for natural resource scarcity and conflict in the Lake Chad Basin. That, for example, the USA Army has recognised that climate change is one of the key security threats to the USA. So I think that connection between climate change as an exacerbating factor for conflict is well proven. And that's why it's so important that countries stay committed to the agreement made in Paris. And I actually thought it was inspiring to see how fast governments and companies were ready to mobilise behind we're in, we're still there, we're staying with the Paris deal, even when the USA has signalled their change of policy. And we have to make sure that those efforts to tackle climate change actually ramp up at a far greater pace and are not allowed to slip back because of a change of policy in the USA. Hmm. I want to change lanes for a little bit and talk about um, something that I was a little bit surprised about before, but sort of uh, this development that International Alert has worked on, which is this... um, uh, conflict monitoring systems um, where you gather ev- evidence-based data to inform policy programs and planning in conflict affair- affected areas. Um, how predictive um, do you have you found, you know, in the, in, in the instances where you've used it, um, how predictive have you found some of this data in pointing to rising, you know, p- or potential conflict? At the heart of all our work in how to operate in conflict-affected states is that you really know and understand what are the root causes of the conflict. And you don't go in with your assumptions. And that's where data is so critical. So our team in the Philippines felt that there were rumours would escalate about, 
oh, the jihad is to blame for violence. Oh, it's the communists. Oh, it's this armed group or that armed group. But people actually didn't know. So they then set about really gathering in-depth local data from local communities, from police reports, from the media, triangulating it, and then using a database to analyse it. And they found the results were quite surprising, that actually when violence spiked was in the hungry season, just before farmers harvest their crops, when actually they have no food, they have no money, and therefore armed robbery spikes. They found the other spike was when the children were going back to school. And again, poor people are short of money, they need to pay for books, their kids need shoes, and again, armed it's actually armed robbery, it's petty crime. And that that really helps then inform the analysis. If you know actually the root cause is poverty, then you know to have you need a different set of policies than if you think the root cause is somewhere else. And what we did see was you could begin to see a slow rise in violence associated, for example, with violent extremism in the case of the Philippines, which, of course, now in May, they will be marking one year since Marawi siege. And you could see it beginning to tick up less numbers of violence caused by that, but more brutal. and so what the database does is it helps government, it helps civil society, it helps local government, and it helps companies analyse what is happening in a particular region and make sure that, therefore, they're taking the right policy responses. And we would be very interested to see how can that be rolled out more broadly so that you have really an in-depth understanding of that. It's a project we've worked on with the Australian government, with the World Bank, and, of course, with the support of the Philippine authorities. What we wouldn't claim is that it has predictive quality. But I do think what we often have are early warnings of conflict coming. Conflict doesn't really very often take people whose finger is on the pulse unaware. The problem is, do we have the early action in response? And that's where really the international community has to up its game. It has to intervene more seriously to prevent violent conflict instead of pouring millions into coping with the the tragic loss of life and the consequences further down the line. What are your plans for uh, enlarging the scope for for something like this? Because it sounds fascinating. And I'm thinking maybe taking that sort of local crime data and maybe looking at it against, you know, like you said, not just seasonal changes in weather and what that means for crops and what that ultimately means for for crime, but, um, you know, potentially uh, persistent changes in climate Absolutely, and I think that's the kind of thing you can begin to track if you if you're looking at it over time and over because it's so detailed the data, and very often something like climate change will have a localized impact. It will be different in different parts of a country. It will be different in different parts of a region, and having that really in depth understanding would help people make decisions and get the right policy responses. So we're really interested to see how can we take what was a pilot and how could we roll it out more broadly. But that needs investment and that's what we're looking for at the moment. Okay. Well, let's let's work on that. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, have been an incredibly important sort of touchstone for um, measuring environmental and social impacts, um, not just for governments, but increasingly investors and companies. I'm wondering, um, because the report does touch on it uh, in conflict-affected settings, but how do you find corporates integrating the SDGs um, within these areas? 
I think it really varies. I think the Sustainable Development Goals are an incredibly useful framing for many companies. And the critical point is that they connect all the pieces of the puzzle. They do make it clear that if you just focus on water and don't think about uh, including women and girls, you're going to run into trouble. And I think that's where they're both incredibly helpful, but can also be quite overwhelming, we have to be honest. And so I know what the leading companies have done is they've invested time and energy to really think about how can they frame their policies and their sustainability strategies within the Sustainable Development Goals, where can they best make and have an impact tangibly because of course the key thing is to take it from the aspirations down to tangibly what do i do tomorrow on the ground in my factory and that that's where sometimes it can become a bit overwhelming and i think that's why we see such a disparity we do see the leaders who have got it and who know exactly what they are doing who are doing really inspiring work around whether it's tackling climate change or depleting water resources But on the other hand, let's be frank, I would say the overwhelming majority of companies have yet to find it as a useful framing. And I think that's why we've got to redouble our efforts to make the Sustainable Development Goals live and breathe for companies um, right across the world, not just the big multinationals, and to make them really work for the smaller companies as well as for the big boys. And that's why I think we're really at the start. You know, it's a long process of saying actually all these issues are connected and that it's about what you do overseas and what you do at home. So there's quite a big shift with the sustainable development goals and there's plenty of challenges thrown down within them. The one we're very focused on is Sustainable Development Goal 16, which is about building justice, about building inclusive governance and about building peaceful societies. And we're really pleased to see that 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 was uh, underlined in the Sustainable Development Goals. But let's be frank, there is a long way to go to make that part of the way that all companies operate. But on the other hand, I can give some examples where some companies are really beginning to look beyond their perimeter gate and I think that's the key that you you open the perimeter gate and you walk outside and you realize actually if you're going to really be a responsible citizen in your in the community where you operate you've absolutely got to address for example issues around uh, gender-based violence that may not be happening on your site that may not be caused by your staff but because of your presence there has led to an increase in gender-based violence so you get to have to tackle that and then the trick is how do companies engage with and build the capacity of local and central government because what you don't want is companies undermining local government in the end often it's their job to provide water or to provide schools but how can you undertake those wider society issues in a way that supports and builds the um, capacity of government yeah you make a really important nuance which is i mean how do you how do you define that balance between a corporate going into a very fragile community and wanting to create a positive positive impact, uh, but you don't want that positive SDG impact to offset a human rights violation? Um, like you said, you don't. Um, the answer is not for government uh, for companies to undermine the responsibility of a local government to provide education or health care. Um, what would you suggest companies do in terms of trying to find that balance between making a positive impact, um, but also you know respecting um, a local government's responsibilities? Well, firstly, I really welcome that 
the importance of no no company thinking that over here they can be abusing human rights, but over here they have a lovely corporate responsibility policy where they're giving to lots of lovely charities and the one offsets the other. Clearly that doesn't get you to heaven. <laughs> it, and it is about starting always with the company's own operations. It's starting with the sites they own and operate. It's then going to their first level suppliers, their second level suppliers, their third level suppliers. And I know that can be really challenging. And you look at how the retail sector has had to work these things through thousands of supply chains for products often selling incredibly cheaply on our shop shelves. So it is a challenge, but I think it's fantastic to see how many companies are ready to step up to the plate and see how can they drive that responsibility right through their core operations. So the key is then, how do you do that in a way that builds and supports government and doesn't undermine it? And so much of that is about stakeholder engagement. In the Philippines, to give you another example, we've worked really hard to set up tripartite discussions between the indigenous community, who were often took an immediate response of being against any outside investment, the local government and the central government that wanted it, and the private sector that clearly wanted to invest in a particular area. And the answer was, you can have either side locked in deadlock, or you can all sit around the table and discuss and discuss and discuss until you find a way of operating that is acceptable to the local community. And that's some of the work we've done. We're mapping different areas and showing that to the community and the company and saying, well, which are the areas that are absolute no-goes for the community because they're, they're sacred lands and which actually are the lands they wouldn't mind so much if, if a company operated in would be one example. But in that, companies also have to be ready to walk away sometimes. They have to be ready to say, except if the community says, we don't want you here. Sometimes some communities just don't want that. They believe it will affect their whole way of life. And companies have to be ready to respect that when companies say that. But we also know from best practice example, by people sitting around and talking about issues enough, a solution will be found. And one example was with an extractive company in Latin America where water was the key issue that the community were worried about. And they, it actually took 18 months. It took endless meetings and discussions. It took the company building the capacity of the local community, not directly, but through an independent third party, so that the, the local community did have the capacity to negotiate with local government, with the companies, that in the end, they did find a solution that's worked for everybody. And I think it's being willing to invest that time and energy up front, which is actually a better business investment than charging ahead, riding roughshod over people's voices, and then facing problems further down the line. So, Harriet, here's the big question, though. What would, as an NGO, what is your advice to investors looking, you know, at the SDG uh, dimension? What advice would you give to institutional investors in terms of, of addressing the UN SDGs in conflict-affected settings? Well, I think institutional investors can play an absolutely critical role in helping create the right environment for business to make the right decisions. And first and foremost, it is about being ready to be long-term patient capital. If As long as the drive on companies is to deliver short-term profits at short-term minimum um, risk, just going for the fast return, that's what drives bad behavior, to be honest. And the companies that really can make a difference for the long-term are the ones 
that have been given that space by their investors and are ready to take a longer term approach, which is where actually you can yield the long term benefits. So I think that's the first point. I think the second one is always to be driving for more transparency. It's no excuse anymore for any company to say they don't have um, sight over what happens further down their supply chain. That is simply not acceptable as an excuse anymore. They need to have it. They need to know what is happening further down their supply chain. Because if they don't, firstly, terrible things could be happening. They could be abusing human rights, which is obviously a moral bad, but will also come back to bite the company in the end. And we've seen time and time again companies being exposed for operations that they had turned a blind eye to. And that's bad for a company's reputation. So it's absolutely critical that companies do address these issues right down their supply chain and that they give the transparency that investors want. And I think that's where investors can help drive that change is by asking for that information. And if it's not there now, well, okay, when will it be here? And when will you can find out? Because these are difficult issues and we understand that it takes companies time. But just to say we don't know, that's not acceptable anymore. I also think investors can really help in asking for much more analysis of the impact of the company uh, in a particular country to say, what is your impact on human rights? What is the due diligence you did to make sure that you weren't going to have a negative impact? How much have you engaged with stakeholders? I want to give you an example. In many, many uh, agribusinesses from all over Europe and from all over the world, including from the Netherlands, for example, invested a lot in Ethiopia. And there was a huge explosion of agribusiness, which was, which was going very well uh, at one point. And then tension rose over land rights and tension rose over the issues in two particular areas of Ethiopia. And that actually led to a number of, of agribusinesses being burnt down, including some of the Dutch flower farms. So critical at that point was the question to investors, would it have been better to have had a checklist at the beginning where you really did your analysis about going and investing in that particular area of Ethiopia? Did you really talk with the local communities and check how they felt about the land that the central government had given to you as a business? Did you check what were the local issues that were causing tensions and what would the impact of your operations be? Did you check how your workers felt about the wages that were on offer, the contracts that were on offer? And actually, if more time and energy had been invested in the beginning, your farm may not have been burnt down. And that would have been a better business decision to have taken that long term view up front. And I think that's, again, where investors can really help support those companies that want to do human rights due diligence and actually put pressure on those who would rather uh, flip over the subject. And I think it's a, it's a great point because investor groups um – have been fairly good about putting frameworks together from a climate perspective. Uh, we're about to see a, a reboot of the just transition, which is sort of uh, examining the confluence of workers' rights and the environment. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, addressing climate change is good for job growth, job opportunities. But uh, the human rights element, the social dimension, has been um, uh, woefully underexplored um, I would say that I mean there are people addressing it but um, it lacks a a framework that is as rigorous and as rigid as you know as, as that that we apply to governance and to uh, the environment uh, so something like that would be uh, incredibly incredibly useful because I feel I feel like particularly uh, 
investors tend to go through a uh, within that human rights dimension I mean there is a box ticking exercise and with any kind of exercise where you're, where you're taking boxes it t- there tends to be a transparency bias so multinational companies uh, bigger companies will tend to have lots of policies in this area and they automatically get credit uh, for at least having established these policies but what it doesn't answer are the underlying dynamics or, or, or conflicts potentially um, that uh, beneath that policy and, and how things are actually being addressed. I think you're so right. And that's why we brought out our human rights due diligence framework was actually to try to break it down into bite sized chunks and to say to companies, it's not as complex as you might fear because I think that also puts people off they think oh now another thing I've got to do my gender analysis my environmental impact and now I've got to worry about am I causing more conflict and I think people sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed and that's why we think it is really important that we break it down into a framework it's actually good practice it's good community engagement it's good stakeholder management it's not that difficult to do but it's absolutely difficult to unwind if you make mistakes early on it's very very hard to win back trust once you've broken it it's much easier to go more slowly at the beginning and build trust but i think it is critical that we learn from the progress that institutional investors have made in other sectors as you say and say how can we take some of that learning and take it to the to the conflict arena so that companies and investors can be sure that they aren't doing harm and that they are contributing positively to peace, which in the long run has to be good for business. Hmm. And actually, that's why we have around the world, we very often work with the private sector about building a voice for peace because the private sector are the first to be affected by conflict. Profits go out the window the minute you can't operate smoothly. We've had... Business leaders, for example, actually one of our board members has had uh, in Nepal a a gun put to his head during the war. It's absolutely in his interest that peace was found and that peace is upheld. And so he's been part of building an alliance for business that has been engaging with government, engaging with different sides, looking at how can you build a more inclusive economy. And so I think it's those also those leadership examples where business have gone above and beyond their immediate Operations to look at what's the wider impact they can have on the context. Okay. So I want to finish up with uh, sort of a question about the governance of NGOs themselves. Um, recently, we've certainly seen some controversy around NGOs, um, allegations around uh, uh, the behavior of some employees from Oxfam, uh, Me Too uh, allegations at Save the Children um, that have not been good for the industry of NGOs. How do you think about governance as an international NGO? Well, obviously, I must say, firstly, we have a zero tolerance policy for any abuse of power, any inappropriate behavior, whether it's corruption or fraud through to inappropriate sexual advances or verbal or physical violence against people and particularly against vulnerable people. And we've actually also had to clean up our act a bit. We did have policies, but they weren't all in one place as a safeguarding policy. So it has been a wake-up call for the sector as a whole, that everybody's had to say, 
we need to update our policies and critically we need to make sure that all the staff understand them because you can have wonderful policies on paper the critical thing is how do staff understand them in the messy reality of day-to-day life and how do they make the right judgment call and how do we support them in that and understanding that it that it is a matter of judgment and talking to people and having somewhere where you can go if you want to blow the whistle where you know you can do that in in confidence so there's some basic housekeeping that we've all had to do in the sector but i also think at the heart of the problem is an imbalance of power between too many international ngos and the local communities they serve that obviously they do come in sometimes as the white savior and that gives them a power that is wrong and that is sometimes then abused and so for me the really interesting thing is how can we as international ngos operating in conflict states find a more equal relationship with our local partners and we we depend at international alert on 800 local partners who to be honest for do the day-to-day hard work on the front line of peace for example we work with an ngo in syria that works in all different parts of syria now we couldn't possibly do that work without them it's because they've got those local contacts in towns and cities throughout Syria that we can seek to build a constituency for peace there. And so how can we get a more equal relationship with them? And one key way, for example, is we've recently invited a member of that NGO to serve on our board so that we're accountable to the our partners, that it's not always the power relationship the other way around. And we did some research recently, in fact, with Oxfam, about how do our local partners see international NGOs in conflict zones. And they had lots of points to say. And they said, can you please stop patronising us by talking about capacity building? I think you'll find it's all about capacity sharing, because mm. we know all about how to operate, for example, in war, war zones like Syria. You might know all about compliance issues and how to report to the donor on finance. So it's a sharing and a learning. You know about monitoring and evaluation. We know about leaving no one behind when we work in difficult areas. And so I think that's been a really interesting uh, nugget that we're wrestling with. But I would also say that civil society needs support now more than ever that space around the world is closing for civil society. There are more and more countries where it's impossible for NGOs to operate, to get registered, to be able to do their work, because governments are feeling that they have a free reign to clamp down on civil society, that people are being imprisoned. And there's an incredible rise in the numbers of human rights defenders and environmental defenders being killed. The figures are terrifying, where people are speaking up because they're not happy with the way for example, a company is investing or a government is operating, they're being killed. And so I think we need, on the one hand, NGOs need to clean out their act, we need to have the best governance, and we need to really reinvent ourselves for the future in a more equal relationship with national civil society around the world. And that also needs support at the same time from the whole global community, including the business community and government. Great. Um, it's a great point to, uh, to finish on. Look, it's been fascinating to hear about the work International Alert is doing in providing frameworks for better governance and conduct uh, around human rights to companies involved in conflict-affected areas. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, Sustainability Strategist at Man Group, here today with Harriet Lamb, CEO of International Alert. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you, Jason. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world 
tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.